We are in Genesis chapter three. We're looking at the fall, the fall. Genesis chapter three. We're gonna go uh, actually at uh, 225 through 37 this morning. So if you'd go ahead and uh, locate that text. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we uh, now turn to your word, thank you that your word is holy. It is uh, pure. It is faultless. It tells the truth about life, tells the truth about the history of the world, and gives us ammunition on how to deal with our own temptations and our own uh, ways to keep from falling. So as we look at our first parents, Lord, and how they fell and the sad consequences of it, give us insight into how we might deal with the schemes of the evil one. You tell us in your word there's a real devil he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You tell us to be firm in our faith and resist him. And we know there's a spiritual battle, Lord. We all sense it. We all feel it. So just help us to be aware of his schemes. We're not to be ignorant of his schemes. But this morning as we talk about these things, give us a spiritual covering, eyes to, to see, ears to hear what your spirit would say to your people. We lay this time at your feet that you might be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. The fall. So we're gonna look at the fall of Adam and Eve. This is the a pivotal moment in the Bible. The first 11 chapters of Genesis establish some very important things and we're looking at the fall of mankind. And as I mentioned in the prayer, the practical application this morning is you're gonna find ways in this text to hopefully keep from falling yourself to temptation. Now, we're all tempted. Uh, to be tempted is not to sin. Uh, temptation in and of itself is not sin. It's doing something, acting upon that temptation, which is sin. Jesus himself was tempted. Of course, he was sinless. He was tempted in all points like us, yet without sin. So he can offer us help and insight and we do know that when he was tempted in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 also records this, he used God's word. Three times he, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And the devil fled from him. And the Bible tells us if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. James 4, 7 says, submit to God, resist the devil. The, first, the best thing that you can do as a Christian, James 4, 7, is first submit to God, then you'll be able to resist the devil, and the promise is that he will flee from you. There is a literal Satan. He literally tempted Jesus. He literally spoke through Peter when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. There is a spiritual battle. You must be aware of it. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, don't be ignorant of the devil's schemes. Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 13 say the same thing. And then alert us that we have spiritual armor to deal with the spiritual battle. Armors for protection. God has given you seven pieces of armor listed in, in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Um, when you put that armor on, it's spiritual covering for a spiritual battle. So we're gonna get insights into how to keep from falling in the fall chapter. First, we start with Genesis 2, 25. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, in Genesis 2.24, we ended last time by uh, looking at the text that says, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and what? Cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
The great marriage verse quoted by Jesus in Matthew 19, quoted by Paul in Ephesians 5, is from Genesis 2.24. And it interests me that right after this early pronouncement of marriage, before there was ever government or a church, there was a family. Now, right on the heels of that, we have the record of the fall. And we do know that the enemy is a usurper and a divider, and he will try to divide your marriage. You can take it to the bank. He is a divider of households, churches, and if you doubt it, remember that he even caused a split in heaven. Revelation 12 tells us he took a third of the stars. And sometimes we're surprised. How could a church split over that? Who got a piece of, bigger piece of prime beef at the church potluck? Well, that's how it works. He's a divider. You've got to be aware of his tactics. He's a usurper. But at this point in man's history, the man, Genesis 2.25, and his wife, just a side note, Adam and Eve are married. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. One man, one woman for life. I said that last Sunday. I know for some people that stirs some feelings in you, especially in light of the controversy in our culture. What does marriage mean? Who defines it? Who should be able to enjoy it? And under what parameters? Well, I told you last Sunday that you are going to have to deal with the scripture because God defined it. A man, singular, shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife in a monogamous relationship, one man, one woman for life. And the man and his wife, Genesis 2.25. God the father or God himself was the first one to walk a bride down the aisle. He brought her to the man, remember? And he went, whoa, man. And that was her name, right? And... Yeah, now a wonderful moment. As the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Their oneness was God's plan. The oneness in marriage that the Hebrew is specifically dealing with, they shall become one flesh, is sexual. It is a physical intimacy. There is a spiritual oneness in marriage, hopefully. There is a friendship oneness in marriage, hopefully. But the two becoming one in Hebrew has more the idea of physical intimacy. And here's the deal really quick. Physical intimacy in the context of marriage is God's idea. God created it. God created it to be enjoyable. God created it for procreation purposes. And God created it so that we would know one another. One of the ways we get to know each other, Adam getting to know her and she him, is through intimacy in marriage. It's blessed by God. Hebrews 13, 4 says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed is undefiled. In its proper setting, intimacy in marriage is blessed by God. It's his idea. But what we tend to do as humans is we take things that are holy and we dirty them. That's what's happened in our culture with sex. Now sex sells everything. Now pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry and it's got its uh, chains on many people, many people in the church under its wrap. What's happened? Here's an illustration. If you had a beautiful lush garden in your backyard, let's say it's red roses and you water it and you've got uh, rich, deep, dark soil 
and these beautiful flowers are growing, roses, red roses, let's say. In its proper setting, it's beautiful. You take care of it, you, you water it. But let's say that you got brand new white carpet in your house and you took a shovel and you took a pile of that dirt and you threw it on your brand new white carpet. Now it's dirty. That's what's happened with a sexual relationship. In its proper setting, where it belongs in the right time, it is blessed by God, it's fruitful. But out of its proper setting, it becomes dirty. And in our culture, we have lost, and I can tell you this from many years in the pastorate and talking to people who are considering marriage or having marital issues, is simply this. We have lost a sense of the sacred. God blesses the sexual relationship in marriage, but not outside of it. And the moment that you begin to do things your way instead of God's way, you will not be blessed. The lie of the enemy is you can be autonomous from God, you can do things your own way, and you'll still be blessed, and that is a lie. God will not bless a relationship outside of what he has laid down. Now, the man and the woman are there, they are naked, but they are, they are unashamed. They were not ashamed. The word shame in Hebrew is bosh. It means to feel ashamed, to be disappointed, disconcerted. The word has overtones of being or feeling worthless. When you feel shame, you feel worthless. The essence of sin, this is what sin does to you. Sin makes you feel worthless, it exposes something about our hearts. And this is the idea of shame. We don't get self-worth from getting a participation trophy, folks, just because we participated in something. We get self-worth from living the right way, from honoring God. And when shame and sin comes in, that's what eats at self-worth. If we really want to teach our kids about how to feel good about themselves, it's walking with God because shame is what attacks our self-worth. And we all know it, because when we feel ashamed, we feel low. And that's where Satan wants us to be, and that's why God said, don't mess with that tree, because you're gonna experience a beautiful innocence if you don't partake of it. And I believe that that tree of the knowledge of good and evil really had to do with them seeing evil for what it was, and God tried to spare them from that. And I drew the analogy last Sunday of how our kids are. We wanna retain their innocence. In fact, little kids tend to run around naked, have you noticed? I mean, when you think about it, they're really the only humans that are unashamed of their nakedness. Then they get old enough and, you know. Have you also noticed that humans are the only creatures that wear clothes? I'm sure you've probably noticed that. <laughs> Although, some of, some of you knit those little sweaters for your dog. <laughs> Stop it, would you please? <laughs> okay, it's not that bad. However, if you have a matching sweater with your dog, then <laughs> stop it. So here they are, in the beauty of their relationship, unashamed. They know each other. They're comfortable with each other. This is the beauty of what marriage is about. Implied in the text is that they have come together and they enjoy being with each other. There's no shame, there's no guilt. Everything's at their fingertips. The beauty of the Garden of Eden, all the trees except one. And they have this beautiful relationship. But sin and shame are about to come in. Sin is a word in Hebrew which means to miss the way or to miss the goal or the path. In the Hebrew picture language, it means the fence that surrounds strongly or 
get this, the fence of the snake's strength. What the enemy tries to do is get you to sin so that one by one you'll build a block wall around yourself. Here's the picture of sin. You end up building a fence around yourself. You create your own prison. That's what sin is. At first, oh yeah, sin can be fun for a season. The Bible acknowledges that. But ultimately, sin, one upon another, without repentance, it builds a wall around you and others. And the way that wall comes down is through humility and repentance. If you want walls to come down in your relationships, you must humble yourself. If you want the wall to come down between you and God, you must humble yourself. And our first parents are in this beautiful garden. They're unashamed, naked and unashamed. It is interesting that the word for naked, arum, ties to the word for crafty in Genesis 3.1. Look in your Bibles, if you would, now. Transition point, Genesis 3.1. Don't know how much time has passed, but I would imagine some time has passed. Now, the serpent was more crafty. Arom, it ties to the word naked. Not sure the connection, but there is a play on words in Hebrew here. He was more crafty than any beast of the field. If you have the NIV, it says of the wild animals. Of all the talk about the serpent in Genesis chapter three, one thing we do know about this serpent is that he was one of God's creatures that he created. So you need to just mark that. If you've been wrestling with this issue and trying to figure out, you know, what's the, what's the deal with the serpent? One thing that we know for sure, just from the plain, what's called the prima facie reading of the text, is that he was one of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. In fact, he may have even been one of the beasts that Adam named. Now, it is possible from the language of the curse later on in the chapter, supported by 3.14, the serpent's told you're gonna to be on your belly the rest of your days, you're gonna eat dust. So it may be that the serpent at some point in the early history of mankind was an upright creature. There are, there's different historical um, beliefs and uh, related to this particular word that he was perhaps a shining upright creature. Uh, stand, standing upright. There's a lot of mystical stuff about serpents. The pharaoh of Egypt wore a serpent as his crown, a cobra on his head. There's a lot of stories about mystical serpents and, and the, the, the way that they manipulated things and that kind of thing. But the serpent, the shift of the scene comes to him. His name is Nakash. And when you say the word, it's one of those words in Hebrews that when, Hebrew that when you say it, you get the idea, nakash, the hiss of the snake. What does his name mean? Well, this is a common name for serpent, but some believe that the name actually suggests a bronze shininess to him as well. In fact, later religious tradition referred to this being nakash as nehushtin, in 2 Kings 18.4, Hezekiah broke the bronze, the bronze serpent in pieces that the sons of Israel burned incense to. Some of you remember this story that Moses made a bronze serpent. He raised it up in the wilderness. Jesus refers to it in John 3. Anybody being bit by a serpent who looked at it was healed. And the bronze serpent may reflect the idea of the serpent, that he was shiny, beautiful, cunning creature. But he is a creature. Now you ask the question, well then how is he talking? Was there a talking snake? We've heard some people mock Christianity with this. I'm gonna take it at face value. I don't know how it worked exactly, but I've met some talking snakes over the years. <laughs> heard a few on television as well. 
So what's going on here? Well, we do know this, that in satanic possession, when Satan is moving and manipulating things, we know there's this idea that he manipulates governments. In fact, there are two, if I were to tell you to give me cross-references from the Old Testament to support the idea that the serpent is Satan, you might struggle a little bit, but there's two places that talk about Satan in his uh, fall, his own fall. They are, you might want to write this down, Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. In that passage, it's Satan's famous I will statements. And he's called Lucifer, son of the morning. He was a shining one. And he said, I'm going to raise my throne up above the stars of God. I will become like the most high. And God says, no, you're not. You're going to be thrown down. So somewhere, maybe on day one of creation, the angels were made. They were told, you're going to be ministering spirits. You're going to minister to those who will inherit salvation. They apparently cannot reproduce. They're servants of God and servants of those who will be saved. And apparently sometime in his history, Satan said, I don't like that. I don't want to be a servant of mankind. And I don't want to serve you anymore, God. And so he bailed. He left. He decided that he wanted to be like God and he fell hard. Ezekiel 28 verses 11 through 19 is the other passage and it says that this being was in the Garden of Eden and he was beautiful in appearance and he may even have been a worship leader in heaven and in his beauty, he got puffed up. He, was, uh, the, he had the seal of perfection on him and he fell hard. So that Lucifer or Satan is simply a fallen angel. He was probably a high-ranking angel. And just in case you doubt the validity of the story, Jesus affirms the story in John 8, 44. Paul affirms the story in 1 Timothy 2 and 2 Corinthians 11. And the whole premise of the New Testament is based upon the fall of mankind and the Redeemer, the second last Adam that comes in to save us. So whatever the mechanics are, we do know this, that the serpent has somehow manipulated an animal that God made. Now you say, well, does he do that? Well, we do know this. The king of Tyre is addressed in, in Isaiah 14, but then it goes to Satan. So the one behind the king of, or the king of Babylon, I should say, in Isaiah 14. And, and then it goes to Satan. It can't be addressing just the human king. The king of Tyre is addressed in Ezekiel 28. But behind that human king seems to be a supernatural being. And I would say to you that on good scholarship, they would believe that somehow Satan was manipulating these kings, these leaders. Some of you have seen uh, footage of Adolf Hitler. There were people who said that when Hitler spoke, he looked like he was possessed. I don't have any doubt that Satan can do that kind of thing. And in fact, history tells us that Hitler was messing with the occult. And Satan used him, and think about it, he killed probably over 20 million people, put them in ovens, fried them, and six million of them were Jews. You see, there is a, there's a deeper picture. There's something going on beneath the surface. It explains why the, the world's attention is on a little sliver of land, the country of Israel, really no natural resources. It has blossomed again. Why does everybody hate that land? Why have they been uh, persecuted by Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Germany? Why are they hated? Because there's a deeper story going on here, you guys. And it has to do with this shining one who fell. 
and him trying to upset God's plan. Now, he was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, somehow manipulating or using the serpent, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, he addresses the woman first. Uh, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure if he went after Adam and Adam was able to resist or if this is the first encounter that they've had. She's probably not surprised by his presence there, but now he says something to her. And what he says is, has God, notice in end of verse one, indeed has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now, what did God actually say to the first couple through Adam? He said, you can eat of any tree. There's only one that I don't want you to partake of. And what does Satan do? He tries to plant a seed of doubt. If you're a note taker, this is Satan's attack on believers. He tries to plant a seed of doubt about God's word. And he tries to paint a picture that God's being more strict and stringent than he actually is. In fact, they had access to every tree in the garden except one. There were lush trees. They were all good for food. They were all pleasant to the eye. They could have anything that they wanted except one. What does Satan try to do? He tries to plant a seed that God's being strict. Boy, you can't do anything as a Christian, can you? Wow. And Christians have so many blessings, right? So many things that the Lord has saved us from and so many things that we can enjoy now that we know him. But Satan tries to get your view on what you don't have. Isn't that the way it is? We see this with little kids. They've opened the 17th Christmas present, right? And they want the box that their brother had. I want the box. Why do you want the box? You haven't even opened three of the presents. Can he get the box? I want the box. You don't have to teach them that. They're born with that. Sin nature. And so you can hear the hiss. And he says, hey, it seems that God is keeping you from things. You can't eat of all the trees, right? When temptation comes your way, that's what it's gonna be like sometimes. You're gonna feel that God's limiting you. Your friends may say that to you. Boy, as a Christian, you can't go out and get drunk, I mean, you feel so great the next day. Why wouldn't you want to do that? <laughs> First John 3, 8 says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. First John 3, 8, the son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. The opening line, mocking condescension. He exaggerates God's prohibition. He manipulates her. Trying to get her to focus on what she doesn't have instead of what she does have. And isn't that the essence of our temptations? We start to watch television commercials and we have so many blessings and we go, I want that one. That's what advertising is supposed to do. It's supposed to bring out in you that you think you need that extra thing, right? And now you become consumed by it. And the woman has a chance to defend God. So she says to the serpent, verse two, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. Serpent has placed before her a chance to clarify. Is she buying in? There's an important insight here. When temptation comes, you begin to buy in uh, to the enemy's lie that you are being limited in your blessings. Your blessings are minimized or completely forgotten. She says, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, it might've been next to the tree of life. We don't know for sure. She says, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, 
lest you die. Now, did God say you can't touch the tree? No, he didn't. Is she exaggerating? Well, maybe Adam shared with her, don't even touch it. That's possible. Or it may be that she's exaggerating the limitations that God put on her. Have you ever noticed before? You tell your son or daughter, you know, you guys are being too loud, quiet. And they start again, right? So you say, your friend needs to go home. That's it, I warned you, your friend's going home. And they burst out into the living room. Daddy said my friend can never come over again. (laughs) And then your wife comes to you, is that what you said to that child? No, I just told him that he has to go home tonight. Oh, we tend to exaggerate, right? If we even touch it, zap, boom, we're dead. I don't think so. That's not what God said. Or somebody used the illustration, you know, you come in late for the 17th time to work and your boss calls you in the office and says, you know, you really got to watch the clock a little better. You can't be late. And you, you go out and you tell your coworkers, he said, if I'm late one more time, I'm going to be fired. <laughs> you see, we can exaggerate things, can't we? And now she says, she even minimizes the penalty for disobedience. She says, we shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. God didn't say lest you die. God said, you will surely die. Sometimes when the enemy's tempting us, we overdo it on what he's, taking, he's uh, protecting us from and we lessen the, the, the disobedience. Well, it, the, the, the serpent says, it's not that bad. You, you won't really die. You know, bad things won't really happen to you if you, if you do that. There's websites that show you how you can do it. <laughs> how you can cheat on your spouse, 25 easy ways. It'll be all right, it's fine. And then we get him in our office and it's a disaster. And the enemy comes and he's, he's slippery this way. And, you know, it may be that one scholar's take is that God may have held back the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not so much that it it was forever held back. This is a point of view, a perspective. But maybe it was a matter of timing. Maybe at one point in the future, they would be able to partake. I don't know for sure. But God has said, I don't want you to eat of that one tree. Now in this garden, here's the temptation. Eve has not taken a bite yet. And here's the point. At any time in the temptation process that you want to stop it, you can You don't have to give in to temptation. One of the graces the church used to say is, if you fall into the same sin, let's say 1,400 times, before you walk down the same street again, this is a grace of the church, this is a a tactic for overcoming temptation, look to the end of the street before you start walking down it and say, you know, I've been down this street 1,400 times and it always ends the same. There's a dead end sign down there and I walk and I walk and I hit my head on it, boom, and I end up with a bruise right here. But this time, I'm sure it'll be different. (laughs) What? I'm sure I won't feel as guilty and as shamed or as worthless. I I think I'll just go ahead and walk down one more time just to see. And the church says, hello. How about you look to the end of the street before you walk down it and say, where is this going to take me if I do this? See, we have to learn to pause when, when we're tempted by our flesh or if the enemy's attacking us, we have to say to ourselves, if I do this, where is it going to lead me? What is it gonna do to everything that I love? That's what 
maturing in your Christian walk means. You know, some moderns applaud the first couple and the serpent as the hero of the story. Since he helps the first couple throw off the chains of bondage in the garden set up by this villainous deity. They change the story or they just read into the story and some modern people say the hero of the story isn't God. The hero of the story is the serpent. He's the one that actually set them free. Oh yeah. Yeah, right. And people today, they think, well, if I become a Christian, there's gonna be so many terrible shackles on me. No, Jesus said, if you know the son, you will be, what? You'll be free. And people think, well, you know, if I can do anything I want. No, if you do life God's way, that's when you'll be blessed. William Lane Craig says, ever since the Enlightenment, when modern man threw off the shackles of religion, he has tried to answer the questions about life and its meaning and death without reference to God. But the answers that came back were not exhilarating, but dark and terrible. Here's the answers. You are an accidental byproduct of nature. The result of matter plus time plus chance. There is no reason for your existence. All you face is death. Your life is but a spark in the infinite darkness, a spark that appears, flickers, and dies forever. How do you like that? And when modern man threw off the so-called shackles of believing and trusting in God, the answers that he got were very dark because by killing God, he killed himself. And modern man says, ah, you don't need that. You're your own God. You're fine. Peter Jones illustrates this point when he tells the story of Madame Helena Blavatsky. At the end of the 19th century, this Russian princess abandoned her roots, her Christian roots, and formed the Theosophical Society. Some of you have heard of Theosophy. In New York, which attempted to merge Western occultism with Eastern spirituality. She wrote some influential books, led a lot of people in that direction. Later in life, she was quoted, quoted as lamenting to a friend, quote, I would gladly return. I would gladly be Russian Christian Orthodox. I yearn for it, but there is no returning. I am in chains. I am not my own. To this sad commentary, Jones appends, the trouble with this freedom is that it is slavery to the powers of evil. Its glittering promise is the same old lie. Its wages lead to personal dissolution and death, but it is a real lie spoken by the father of lies, close quote. There are women who are involved in the pornography industry right now. They go on camera and they lie before the cameras because they're manipulated to do so to say they enjoy what they do. They have to get, I heard one gal talking about this, they have to get uh, somehow intoxicated or loaded to go before the camera to lie that they enjoy being involved in pornography. It's a pack of lies. The whole world set up by it is a lie. And behind it is the father of lies. And the serpent, verse four, said to the woman, you surely shall not die. The Hebrew construction is not. You shall surely die. Not. Nope. Now here's a direct frontal attack on God's word. God said the day you partake, you will die. Satan says, no, you won't. Here's the question. Who are you gonna believe? 
You know, there are two roads, right? There are only really two. And when Satan literally uh, uh, tempted Jesus, Luke 4, Matthew 4, three times Jesus said, it is, what? Written. He used the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and the devil fled from him. And in that temptation, you can see how you can deal with the attacks of the enemy. You must stand on God's word and not believe the lie. And he says, no, you're not gonna die. I don't care what God said, you're not gonna die. Now, who are you gonna believe? God's word or the world's lies? Jesus said to the religious leadership of his day, you are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8, 44, Jesus said that. Paul said, I am afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. 2 Corinthians eleven three. Paul goes on to say that his ambassadors, Satan's, are deceitful workers. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Temptation is most effective when it is hidden behind a cloak of spirituality. When it is hidden behind a cloak of half-truths, you must understand this. When it looks good and sounds good, temptation by definition is tempting. If it weren't, we wouldn't call it temptation. Amen? So here you have now the pivotal moment. Eve is being lured closer and closer. She's doubting God's blessings. The serpent's got her focus now on his lies. And he goes one step further. He says, God knows. Now he's going to speak for God. Look at verse five. That in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the frosting on the cake. If you eat, you'll be like God. Wait a minute. I thought they were already like God. I thought they were already made in God's image, weren't they? So why would they need to be made like God if they were already made in his image? The King James is interesting here. Genesis 3, 5 says, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The oldest lie in the book is the lure of divinity, Do you know how many religions, world religions, cults, isms, the occult, teach that you will become God? That this lie has been repeated over and over and over again. And people buy it hook, line, and sinker. Oh, if I do this, hey, doesn't it sound pretty good though? I mean, there's a lure there. You can become your own God. Control, power, autonomy, S on my chest, I can fly. (laughs) I mean, it is a lure, isn't it, to mankind? R. Kent Hughes says, the lure of divinity, the lie also held out of the lure of moral autonomy, she would decide what was right and wrong. How intoxicating. She would make the rules. She would do it her way. That promise still intoxicates A funeral director told me that among the unbelieving population, Frank Sinatra's My Way is the first in first place as a funeral favorite. 
Another funeral director confirmed this, saying that he witnessed the very song, My Way, was used as the musical motif for a funeral communion. But the truth is, says Hughes, my way is the dirge of death, marking the implosion of the autonomous self, but what deadly magnetism it carries. I did it my way. Yeah. yeah. Don't clap for that. <laughs> I'm making fun of it. <laughs> I had to practice that so many times. <laughs> Get this. The very thing that made Lucifer fall wanting to be like God or as high as God, now he puts it on our human parents. How misery loves company. Now that he's fallen, well, maybe he can get them to fall too. Have you noticed People who are sending up a storm, they try to get you to do what they're doing because misery loves company. That's what the serpent does. James 1.14 says, each one of us is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. These words are hunt hunting and fishing terms. I'm not much of a fisherman, but I know something about a lure, and it's this. A lure is try to lure a fish out of a place of safety to get him to chomp on what you threw down there, and it looks good to him, so he takes the bite, and behind it, it's a hook, and that is what sin does. The enemy doesn't tell you the hook behind it. He just says, go ahead and take a bite. You'll be fine. You won't die. Now he's got the woman focused on the prize. She's got everything else at her fingertips, but now... Temptation has taken her to a place where all she can focus on is the one thing she can't have and she thinks she needs. She's ignored every other blessing in the garden. That's what the enemy tries to do to you. You've got to know it. And when the woman saw, verse six, that the tree was good for food, that it was delightful to the eyes, it looked good, and the tree was desirable. He played on her desires to make one wise. You'll be, you'll be like God. She took from its fruit and ate. Here's the plunge. He's got her so focused now that she wants it so badly, he could just glide out of the way. She's focused on that one thing, and she takes the bite. The Bible says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. In the temptation, you can see the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That's 1 John 2.16. It's all there in the tree. It looks good. Temptation is tempting. And so she takes the bite. But what's shocking about this scene is that she gave also to her husband, would you note in your Bible, with her, Amma, there's no other way to say it, he was with her, and he ate. Now, scholars who write about Genesis say, well, maybe Adam was in another part of the garden for a while, or maybe he was kind of within earshot, but he didn't really know what's going on. Well, the plain reading of the text says, he was there, watching a ball game, no doubt. Distracted. I don't know what he was doing, but he did not step in. And one of the temptations that modern men deal with is the idea, please hear me well, men, of passivity. 
Being passive is something you must fight. You've been called to lead. You've been called to be the head of your family. You've been called to stand between the world and its lies and the serpent and your family and your wife. And Adam sat there and he did nothing. Nothing. And in fact, in the New Testament, Romans 5.12, and first, well, especially Romans 5.12, holds Adam responsible. The woman was quite deceived, 1 Timothy 2. Adam, she was deceived. Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. Why he took it, I don't know, because he knew the penalty, but he's held accountable, and God ultimately says it was the sin of one man, Adam, that brought death to the human race. Eve takes, she's got ownership as well in 1 Timothy 2, but Adam takes the main culpability. Why? Because he's the head of the family. The church has an order, and men are called in elder and pastor positions of the church. Men and women are equal, but there is an order. Men are to practice headship in the family. They've been given that responsibility by God. A woman is to lovingly encourage a man's headship, and a man is to lovingly love his wife as Christ loved the church. It's not about domination. It's about dying. But it is also understanding that there is an order in the church and in the household. And when we give that up, we give up God's order. These are creation ordinances. And Adam now partakes. Why he did, I don't know. But he takes. He did nothing. And the question is, why? Somehow, he let passivity get the best of him. And mankind plunged into ruin. Sad. Now, notice what they do. Then the eyes of both of them were open. Now, Satan didn't tell a full lie. He did say their eyes would be open, but he didn't give them all the details. Half lies or half truths are very effective. And when their eyes were open, I'm sure they couldn't have imagined that this was what Satan was talking about. They knew that they were naked. For the first time, Adam and Eve feel shame. They both feel worthless and they try a cover-up. Right? They're going to hide from God. By the way, when they try to sow the fig leaves, which is what they do next, they sowed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Who are they hiding from? It's just them two, the animals, and who? God. And apparently they are hiding from God, and that's what sin will cause you to do. Instead of running to God, we often hide from God, but when we fail, we should run to God. And so they attempt this cover-up with fig leaves, the biggest leaves in trees in Canaan is my understanding, but still, of course, they're not gonna suffice. And they tried their own cover-up. And our righteousness, Isaiah 64, 6 says, is as what? Filthy rags before the Lord. They try to cover themselves, but they can't. They still feel shame. It's, it's the attempt of man to cover his own humiliation and sin before God. I'll, I'll take care of this. And God says, no, you can't. Your best efforts won't atone for your sin. But here's the good news. God is about to come into this garden and he's gonna provide a covering. And it's the early picture of the gospel. In fact, it would seem that God killed some animals and provided skins to cover them. And the Bible teaches us that the way you get saved is you become covered or cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. And on the cross, I want you to think with me as we close, Jesus is on the cross taking the fall for us. Is that a God who doesn't love you? Is that a God that's overly strict and doesn't want to bless you? Do you know that many scholars believe that he's on the cross naked? exposed. He despised the shame, but he took the shame for us. 
that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's God's love for you. And God comes and he covers us in the righteousness of Christ. And if you're covered in that righteousness, when you stand before the holy judge, you won't fall, you will stand because he will see you through the finished work of his son and you will have his righteousness. But if you try to stand in your own fig leaves and your own covering on that day, you will fall and you will fall hard. And the decision is just very clear. Christ is the way. He shed his blood that we might be cloaked in the righteousness of God. He despised the shame of the cross, but he did it because God so loves us that even in our mistakes, he's willing to cover us in his blood. Would you bow with me, Father? Thank you for this practical lesson and thank you that even in this ugly chapter, we can see hope. We see in Adam's wounded side a picture of the gospel and the the last Adam who would come, who would defeat principalities and powers on the cross, triumphing over them through the cross. Thank you that you took our shame and we will not be found naked on that day. We will not be exposed before your holy throne, but we will be cloaked, cleansed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, with your head and heart bowed, if you've not met Christ and you're trying to do this on your own, you're not gonna make it. You can't be religious enough and good enough. We've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. But if you will run to the creator who died for your sin, you will believe on his death on the cross and his resurrection. You believe that he is God who shed his blood as a man for you. You will be saved. If it's you this morning, if you've not met him, if you don't know, God forbid, if you died tonight, where you would end up, settle it. Say, Jesus, pray it out loud. If it's you, Jesus, save me. Forgive me for doing it my way, believing the lies. I have shame and guilt, and sometimes I feel worthless. Thank you that you so love me. You came into this world to save me. You took my shame, my guilt, my judgment at the cross. Cry out to him if it's you. You may be a prodigal in here and maybe you've taken a bite of some forbidden fruit and it's hurt you. There's hope. There's forgiveness in Christ and new beginnings and we've all sinned, we all fall short. We've all made our mistakes after becoming Christians. We rest in his forgiveness, but don't keep going that way. Turn, come back to your first love. And Lord, for this precious congregation, may we have a little bit more insight now into what we face, why the world is the way it is, the hope of our Redeemer, Messiah, and Lord, how we can overcome our own temptations to keep from falling as much as possible. But when we fall and we make a mistake, let us quickly run to our Savior, our Lord, our Intercessor, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we're covered. Our life is hidden in Christ, in God. And we're, you've got us covered, Lord. Thank you so much. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.